0: In late June 2019, nearly nine months after Saudi assassins brutally murdered Jamal Khashoggi and carved up his body, President Trump flew to Osaka, Japan for a G20 summit. Among the world leaders he met there, Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, or MBS. To be with the Crown Prince
1: of Saudi Arabia, a friend of mine, a man who has really done things in the
0: last five years in terms of opening up Saudi Arabia. The previous fall, the CIA had told Trump that MBS had authorized the operation that killed Khashoggi, his country's most prominent journalist. But if Trump had any qualms about what his own intelligence officials had told him, there was no hint of that when he and MBS spoke in Osaka. I want to just uh, thank you on behalf of a lot of people, and I want to congratulate you. Uh, You've done really a spectacular job. And true to form, Trump once again brought up what he seemed to appreciate most of all, Saudi weapons deals with American defense contractors.
1: As you know, Saudi Arabia is a big purchaser of American products and especially of America military equipment. We make the best in the world by far, and we appreciate that they do. Uh, They create at least a million jobs are created by the purchases made by Saudi Arabia. So uh, we're very happy to be with you. Great honor. Thank you all very much for being here. Thank
2: you. Thank you, Mr. President, for your warm welcome. Uh, We're trying to do our best for our country, Saudi Arabia. There was,
0: by this point, little pushback to the veritable love fest in Japan between the American president and the Saudi leader. The Khashoggi murder had largely faded from the headlines. But there were some in Congress who still had questions about various aspects of the case. And one of those questions was whether there were any American fingerprints on the crime specifically whether any U.S. security firms had actually trained the Tiger team of Saudi assassins who flew to Istanbul to kill Khashoggi. We'll discuss what happened next on this special bonus episode of Conspiracy Life. I'm Michael Isikoff, host of Conspiracy Land. and for this special bonus episode, uh, we are joined by Elias Youssef, the Deputy Director of the Security Assistance Monitor at the Center for International Policy and somebody who tracks arms sales from American defense contractors to foreign countries, including, first and foremost, Saudi Arabia. Elias, welcome to the podcast.
3: Hi, Michael. Uh, great to be here, and thanks for having me.
0: You know, I find that exchange in Osaka, Japan, so fascinating because it sort of reinforces what has been a principal theme of this entire Conspiracy Land season, and that is the central role of weapon sales from American companies to the Saudis in the U.S.-Saudi relationship. You know, we talked about in episode two, the original meeting between FDR and King Ibn Saud on the USS Quincy, which begins the security for oil relationship that sort of continues for the next 70 years. But Trump, in a visible way, made
3: this front and center, and he kept coming back to it? Yeah, it's fascinating because I think in a way that no other president did, it, it was odd that you know almost every other president thought of the arms sales to Saudi Arabia as supporting broader policy imperatives, whether that was access to oil or part of the Cold War effort to contain the Soviets. It was always in service to a broader agenda, but in a, in a very unique way, President Trump for President Trump, the arms sales were the policy. It was the imperative, which is a departure from this sort of long-standing arms for oil relationship that, as you said, extended into the, the 1930s. So it, it was unique and, and certainly oil companies and arms companies for, for years have had their own commercial interests at stake here and have lobbied for whatever they, they thought was best for their own you know, bottom line. But for President Trump, it was the first time that so publicly the commercial component of the arms sales was the was the reason for maintaining this partnership in, in the way that it did, despite what were increasingly divergent interests in the region and then maybe easily in the kingdom.
0: Right. And, you know, we're, we're going to get to that in, in a moment. But I mean, you know, there's that iconic scene at the White House in 2018 when Trump Welcomes MBS to the White House. MBS is on his one of his charm offensive tours, in which he's wowing, you know, American corporate leaders and American government leaders, opinion leaders, journalists. But Trump has him to the White House, and he holds up poster boards of all the the weapons the Saudis are buying. You know, the uh, the frigates and the tanks and and, and the aircraft, and it was. Really, in a way that I don't think we'd ever seen before from an American president.
1: 889 million, 63 million, and that's uh, for various artillery. The C 130 helicopter uh, airplanes, the Hercules, great plane, $3.8 billion. The Bradley vehicles, that's the tanks, $1.2 billion. And it really means uh, many, many jobs. We're talking about over. 40,000 jobs in the United States. We really have a great friendship, a great relationship. So it's a great honor to have you and your representatives here. Crown Prince, thank you very much. Thank you for being here.
3: I mean, it's somewhat comedic, unfortunately. That's the first thing that comes to mind. But it also, I think, spoke volumes about the way the president prioritized the money components of the arms relationship. Again, presidents have thought, have thought about arms sales to Saudi Arabia as part of the strategic architecture of the Middle East and in service to a number of other important goals. But this was the first time that you saw a president selling and being a salesperson in, the, in that way for the arms industry and for these products. And I don't think it could have been better represented by anybody than holding up a poster board in front of another, right. you know, an, a, a king, you know, a, a leading head of state. It was quite comical and, yeah. and a little embarrassing if I'm being honest right right he was crown prince of course yes, it was right. not, 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 not not
0: the king but right. de facto um, de facto leader of, of, of right County de League. facto head of state and that is a scene that we play uh, at some length in episode two of right. the uh, conspiracy land series but let's get to the training issue because that's a pretty fascinating one it's 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 an issue you and I talked about you know some months ago and the difficulty in getting to the bottom of it. But let's start with the hearing before the Senate Armed Services Committee on August 6, 2020. And just to sort of lay the the groundwork here, Trump has nominated a man by the name of Louis Bremer to serve as his Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations, SOLAC, you know, overseeing the Navy SEALs, the Green Berets, all special ops that the Pentagon conducts all over the world. Now, Bremer happens to be the managing director of something called the Cerberus Capital Management, which is a huge investment firm. And it's headed by a guy named Steven Feinberg, who's a billionaire financier, mega GOP donor, who Trump has named as his chair of his intelligence advisory board. And one of the companies that Cerberus owns is called Tier One Group, which is based in Arkansas, and it has a small five-person board of directors. And Bremer, the nominee to be in charge of special ops at the Defense Department, is one of those five board members of Tier One. Tier One is a company that engages in paramilitary training for both U.S. and for foreign intelligence and military operatives. It has, it was originally called Aggressive Training Solutions. It conducts intensive training uh, at a compound outside Memphis where there's a uh, fake Afghan village for staging commando raids, an outdoor course for technical and evasive driving, and a uh, long distance shooting range. We actually have. Some, um, some of the training videos that Tier 1 has put out. Mark, you want to play uh, a couple of those, uh, some excerpts from those videos? Hi, I'm Carl Erickson. We're out here at Tier 1 Group, which is a world-class
3: training facility for America's Finest.
1: How about we run Test 9, give them a little taste of it? I like it. Let's do that. Nice.
0: is ready! Stand by! There they come. I right, said that was awesome. So, Tier 1 conducts this kind of training, and it was reported by David Ignatius in the Washington Post in March of 2019 that Tier 1 Group's clients may have included Saudi operatives who are part of the Tiger team of assassins that were, uh, that conducted the Khashoggi operation. And Senator Tim Kaine, who is on the committee, wants some answers from Bremer. Let's listen to some of the exchanges that took place between Senator Kaine and Lou Bremer at this hearing before Senate Armed Services Committee.
2: Thank you, Mr. Chair, and to the witnesses, thank you for your service to the country and your willingness to continue serving. Mr. Bremer, were you aware of claims that had been made that members of the Saudi Rapid Intervention Group that were sent to Istanbul to assassinate Jamal Khashoggi might have received training by Tier 1 Group? I was not aware of that. Do you know whether Tier 1 Group has conducted any internal investigation to determine whether Saudis that had been trained by the Tier 1 Group uh, participated in this? Uh, Not to my knowledge or recollection, Senator. I I do know that we train Saudi nationals as part of our engagements with the kingdom. As an allied nation, we train other other nations as well, but I have no knowledge of that. So until today, you had not been aware that an allegation had been made that a company on which you sit as a director with Mm -hmm. a small board of directors had potentially been involved in training Saudis who were participants in the assassination of Jamal Khashoggi? Senator I don't have any recollection of that. Um, There is a possibility that we did have a discussion about it. It's a number of years ago. I could go back and check my records and come back to you uh, on a more specific answer. But to my recollection I do not recall internal discussions on that.
0: So I I have to say, Elias, when you listen to Bremer's answers there, uh, I don't have any recollection of that. There's a possibility we may have had some discussion. It's kind of a red flag that um, there may be more
3: there, correct? If I had been told that a company uh, upon which I sat on the board had trained Saudi assassins in the most high-profile assassination of the last decade, I would certainly remember that, I suppose.
0: You would think so. So uh, here's what we know happened next. Bremer did go back and check his records. He was still at that point trying to get confirmed by the Senate. And he drafts written replies to Kane's questions, and he sends them to the Trump White House for review. And when he does so, officials at the White House freak out. A former senior Trump administration official who reviewed Bremer's responses told me he was flabbergasted when he read them. Bremer confirmed that Tier 1 group had indeed trained members of this Saudi rapid intervention group, the Tiger team of assassins, and that their, quote, were invoices for members of the Saudi hit team. Now, To be clear, there's nothing to suggest that what tier one was uh, training the Saudis in included carving up the bodies of journalists. But those responses, those written responses, really opened up a can of worms for the Trump White House. Uh, The CIA was on a tear about the training and assistance that former U.S. intelligence operatives were providing to authoritarian regimes around the world. This seems to be exhibit A of that, to have done the training for this particular team. So what they decide to do basically is cover the Whole thing up, they never forward Bremer's responses to the Senate committee, essentially letting his nomination die rather than have it exposed that there was American training for the Saudi operatives that conducted this, you know, brutal murder of a prominent journalist. So I remember talking to you some months ago about this, because you track these sort of things, and the thing that uh, really leapt out at me is Tier 1 would have had to have had a State Department license to conduct this training, but there's no public record of any of these sorts of licenses, correct? Correct.
3: Yeah, that's right. It's, it's really a, a black box in the issue of American arms transfers and the transfer of security services abroad that, um, particularly for commercial sales, which is what this seems to have been, um, there, we don't really have any record or access to the information about what the license included, how it was approved, and the degree of vetting that would have gone forward for such a license um, for the Saudis for a number of different reasons. But it's certainly yeah, I was going
0: to say, why, why is that? Uh, on what grounds are these licenses not
3: public? Right. So there's a couple of there's a couple of components there. First and foremost is that it seems that the Saudis purchased this training with their own national funds and not through. US security sector assistance, which does have improved reporting. But they also did that directly with Tier one or the commercial vendor, which means that, Unlike foreign military sales, which are managed by the U.S. government, this is done almost entirely between Saudi Arabia and the defense contractor, which means it's just at the very end that the U.S. does a little checkbox and provides a license. Um, But because they're direct commercial sales, they aren't publicly reported on. And what the rationale for that is, I don't have the foggiest. But it's just a matter of the way that these arms sales are done, that commercial contracts um, that are negotiated directly between the two parties um, don't have a public reporting requirement. They are handled really at the very last second by the Director of Defense Trade Controls. And it means that the public, my, people like myself and other experts, don't have an eye into this. And so while we know that, for example, in the year before uh, Khashoggi's assassination, the U.S. provided training for 67,000 some students, we, that doesn't include the what must be tens of thousands more that are done through commercial sales uh, between foreign partners and an American client or an American vendor. So I mean
0: I I'm assuming that uh, the rationale may have something to do with you know proprietary commercial information, but this is a government license, you know, Correct. for a an American company to do business with the intelligence and military departments of a foreign nation. It's hard for me to understand how the proprietary commercial aspect of that trumps, you know, the public's right to know and Congress's right to know. Congress did not know
3: about And this, actually, it's right? even worse than that. So, yeah, you know, part of the argument we've heard is that there is— you know, proprietary information about the pricing models that these companies use, that they have some right to privacy in these engagements. In my view, the public interest component should trump that very, very spectacularly. But in addition, these sales, I think, often fall below the notification threshold for Congress, even when they are done between uh, the US government and a foreign nationals. So even if this was that government to government sale, it's likely that Congress wouldn't have been notified and we wouldn't have a public record of this in any case. Well, um,
0: presumably, so if they were notified, Kane would have known the answer to his questions that he was putting presumably. to Bremer, so, right? You
3: know. Yeah, and so and so this is another issue: is that the threshold value for these services is it's sometimes you know in the millions, maybe even fifty million dollars. And so, if a sale for training between Saudi Arabia and a commercial partner falls below that number, Congress doesn't get a notification, which is a huge, huge problem because you know training a handful of foreign operatives doesn't cost. Fifty million dollars, you know, and and so I expect that there are a, a number of instances where this just falls totally below the radar of, of congressional right. oversight.
0: I I should point out that um you know when I was uh, seeking to report this, I had reached out to Bremer, to Cerberus, uh, to Feinberg, and none of them responded. But Bremer did when approached by the New York Times respond to them and shared with them the written responses that were never sent to the committee and that you know finally allowed all this to become public. but what just taking a step back, what do you make of this arrangement between Tier one group and uh, and the Saudis and the fact that they were doing this kind of training?
3: For me, the biggest problem is that I worry this is mundane and commonplace. I think that when you consider the, the tens of thousands of people that the US or US companies are providing training to every year and the fact that it's just a handful of state department officials who are reviewing tens of thousands of licenses every year with which I believe to be with a with an inkling to approve for the for as many as they can it's very risky that the US is rubbing shoulders with very similar types of folks that were part of that hit squad and very possibly contributing to the efficacy of these high-end military units of questionable foreign countries who are likely doing, if not the same sort of similar repressive tactics, hit squads, um, internal repression, all of those sorts of things. I think it is very likely that we are providing training to those sorts of people. And we, we know of a number of instances where the U.S. has provided training to Coup leaders, um, you know, School of the Americas may be the best example, but it's right.
0: It's school of Americas in Central America, which were trained, you know, special forces and operatives for all sorts of South American authoritarian regimes in the in the sixties, seventies, and eighties.
3: Yeah, precisely. And we also know of even more recent times where coup leaders in Mali or or other such places have received training from the United States. And so you know, I, I worry that rather than this being as horrific as it was, rather than this being some, you know, unbelievable occurrence, I worry this is more routine than 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 uh, we realize.
0: And by the way, uh, you know, uh, if people listen closely to those exchanges between Cain and Bremer, Bremer did acknowledge that we train Saudi nationals as part of our engagement with the kingdom as an allied nation. So the fact that Bremer's company was involved in the training of Saudi intelligence operatives was something that much was acknowledged by Bremer. I'm not sure how many people picked up on it, but you know it was an important uh, acknowledgement that he made. But I guess you know, sort of bottom line is does underscore, just how close the alliance is between the United States and Saudi Arabia, even as the Saudis have been engaging in all sorts of repressive actions, authoritarian actions, surveillance of its critics, you know, uh, abductions, kidnappings, a gruesome murder, as well as the barbaric nature of its war in Yemen, which has slaughtered
3: thousands of civilians. Yeah, and I would actually only add, you know, in 2018, or fiscal year 2018, the U.S. provided training to at least some 1,700 Saudi nationals, you know, whether that was through security sector assistance programs, which is programs that the U.S. taxpayer funds, or uh, through foreign military sales, which are government-to-government sales, that doesn't include the direct commercial sales we discussed. So, you know, we, we are certainly providing and have provided for decades now a really critical training component to the to the Saudi military elite. And so, you know, we I think it's sort of irrelevant whether or not we're rubbing elbows with the exact people who are doing this, that and the other. Bottom line is that we are a critical component of sustaining the U.S., the Saudi military uh, machine, which is responsible or I should say the security sector machine, which is responsible for a lot of the things that you just mentioned.
0: Right. And, you know, this is one piece of that broader, you know, security arms for oil relationship that we were we started out talking about. And, uh, you know, one thing that uh, struck me in one of the reports that your group has done uh, tabulating U.S. arms sales to the Saudis over a 10 year period from 2009 to 2019, 138 billion dollars. In weapons sales, uh, and that <laughs> this was really striking to me as well. Over ninety percent of those went to just four companies: Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, Boeing, and General Dynamics. So when Trump talks about you know the importance of these arms deals for America and calls it America first and all that. He's also talking, if not primarily talking about the giant revenue streams and profits going to just a handful of giant American defense contractors.
3: Yeah, that's right. And, you know, we, the, the U S department of defense, um, their figures suggest that between 1950 and 2020, there was something like $172 billion worth of arms sales to Saudi Arabia. So it is, you know, by far the largest historic clients, maybe aside from Israel, of, of U.S. arms. Um, what
0: was the time period you put on that?
3: So between uh, fiscal years 1950 and 2020, the Defense Security Cooperation Agency estimates that the U.S. sold something like $172 billion in arms. And...
0: Well, the, because the report that you mentioned had for a 10-year period, $138 billion starting in 2009. So they must have real, I mean, if these figures, if we're comparing apples and apples, then those arms deals have skyrocketed.
3: Yeah, there's been an absolute skyrocketing in the arms sales, especially over the last 10-year period. And now I'll say that the the State Department and DOD does, does very odd ways of counting, either to inflate or undercut their numbers, but it just gives you a sense of the scale here and particularly over the last few years the notifications for that have been in the you know in the tens of billions of dollars so and and, and i would also add that in the 2018 uh, conventional arms transfer policy it was one of the first times that the trump administration or any administration put so clearly the commercial and private sector interests of the arms transfer uh, policy at the forefront of its of its um, thinking when it came to U.S. arms transfer. So I really do think that this area, there's an enormous commercial connection that I think um, you alluded to just now that is really right.
0: Now, also, this sharp increase over the last 10 years coincides with the Saudi war in Yemen, which was initiated by MBS after he becomes defense minister in 2015. And the role of American weapons in that war has been pretty prominent. It's an issue we deal with in episode five of Conspiracy Land, The Rise of the Bullet Guy. But how critical to the Saudi bombings in Yemen uh, which have displaced you know, tens of thousands of people and killed thousands of civilians, how critical uh, is the role of American weapons and other American support for that Saudi war?
3: I would say from its beginning in 2015, U.S. support has been essential to the Saudi war effort. Whether you consider the uh, air-to-air refueling, which was essential, the intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance assistance, or simply the fact that the uh, the Saudis are, are depending on mostly American planes and, and overwhelming on American munitions for their air war, I think it's safe to say that the Saudis would be incapable of having sustained this conflict um, over the last five, six years without... Enduring and long standing American support. I mean, that's simply put, that's right. the way it
0: is. Now, goes. the Biden administration says they're going to curtail offensive support for the Saudi war machine. What exactly does that mean? Uh, have they, in fact, cut off arms sales and cooperation with
3: the Saudis? It's a mixed bag. So, you know, what the administration said was they were ending offensive support to Saudi operations in Yemen. So that included things like targeting assistance and then a suspension of uh, offensive arms, um, including munitions to Saudi Arabia. What it did not include or what is unclear if it is uh, included would be things like sustainment support for the Saudi air fleet, maintenance support and other uh, intelligence support broadly for for Saudi Arabia. And that um, sustainment and maintenance support is essential for keeping Saudi air uh, airplanes in the skies. I mean, to be honest, the Saudis, despite all the money they spent on their armed forces, remain dependent on U.S. services to keep their 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 Saudi air force um, flying. And so it remains enduring. And I would also add that there it's unclear if there has been continued support for the Saudi naval blockade. Um, which is part of the reason why there is such a severe humanitarian crisis in Yemen at this point. Um, so, you know, progress made, uh, admittedly, between the Trump and Biden administration for halting things like munition sales, but there is enduring U.S. support to to the Saudi uh, operations in, in Yemen.
0: Right, and I do have to say, you know, I was really struck by back in February when, you know, the Biden administration releases that intelligence report, which. Concludes that MBS did authorize the operation to either capture or kill Jamal Khashoggi. They impose what they call this Khashoggi ban on visas for people who have participated in um, Saudi officials who have participated in the repressive actions uh, against dissidents around the world. But just before they did so, Lloyd Austin. Secretary of Defense, calls his counterpart in Saudi Arabia to reaffirm the strategic partnership between the United States and Saudi Arabia. And of course, his counterpart is the defense minister of Saudi Arabia, one Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, the crown prince.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think there is no avoiding... MBS. You cannot deal with Saudi Arabia without dealing with MBS, which I'm sure is part of this calculus behind the administration's, what I would say would be wavering actions following um, his elections. There was um, quite a lot of fanfare to some of the things that President Biden was saying when he was running for the office. And he had a lot of things to say about Saudi Arabia, very forceful things that led a lot in the ad. He said he
0: he was going to make them a pariah. And, and yeah. that they would pay a price for the gruesome murder of a
3: journalist for an American newspaper. And here we are today. And and I, and I think that we are, aside from the actions you mentioned about the suspension of offensive operations, we are sort of in a status quo place where practically not as much has changed in terms of the relationship the U.S. Um, has with Saudi Arabia and the relationship MBS enjoys um, with the United States.
0: Right. And, you know, Coming back to what is the sort of principal story of Conspiracy Land, a crime was committed, a murder, a pretty brutal, gruesome murder was committed, and from all appearances, authorized by the Saudi Defense Minister, Crown Prince, the aforementioned MPS. And it does not appear that there's going to be any real price that the people who ordered this operation are going to pay
3: at all. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that there has been a, being in office has had a clearly a moderating effect on the Biden administration's view of Saudi Arabia for whatever reason. And I think it speaks to what has been this enduring partnership that has existed through similarly difficult times for, you know, 70 years effectively.
0: Well, on that note, uh, sobering note, um, Elias, I want to thank you for joining us on this special bonus episode of Conspiracy Land. And urge all our listeners, if you haven't listened to the main episodes, one through eight, they are rolling out as we speak. uh, And please take a listen and you'll hear a fuller explanation of all these issues. Thanks a lot, Elias. Thank you very much, Michael. I appreciate it.